Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I apologize if I sound congested. It's because of the uh, smoke that's in the air from our good neighbors up north that are sending wildfire smoke down our way. And I don't know about you, but it's been awful. (laughs) Uh, And that's true all over the country, Um, mostly, you know, starting in the Midwest and and all the way over the East Coast. And from what I hear, anyway, the um, prognosis is not good for this ending anytime soon, just because of the number of uh, fires that are still out of control, the ongoing dry conditions and so forth. So I guess this is something we just have to live through. It's putting a damper on the summer, if you ask me. Anyway, uh, very big news this week, I'm sure you heard. But the U.S. Supreme Court made ruling in a case that uh, many people were watching and were interested in if the court would take a different stance on uh, the general topic of affirmative action, but generally, more specifically, how it relates to college admissions. And I guess one might say for the second time in this particular court's tenure, uh, they have reversed precedent and that's kind definitely true with regard to the Dobbs decision uh, last year, but one probably couldn't say exactly the same thing with regard to this case because it has to do with the long history of what affirmative action is, the role it played, and the fact that it was never technically designed to be something that would last forever. And the general concept, I'm sure you're familiar with it, is that after years of problems that we in the United States have created for minority groups, um, particularly black people, due to a a long history of discrimination and, you know, racism that's been unfortunately part of our culture going back hundreds of years. And affirmative action was an idea that, you know, the premise of it is that if there could be some uh, adjustment with regard to uh, some of the social economic base that in the big picture gives people that were deprived opportunities in the past uh, a bit of an advantage. Maybe not even a bit of an advantage, but a, a big advantage. And there was a case in the U.S. Supreme Court that was decided uh, roughly 20 years ago where the court specifically stated that, look, you know, affirmative action is not something that's supposed to be present forever. It's something that is, you know, reparative and, um, again, um, something that is supposed to level uh, or right the wrongs of the past in order to make these adjustments to society so that going forward we hopefully can remedy this uh, the problems that our own society have created. So the way that it had worked for years is that based on an affirmative action model, when a college would receive applicants in order to promote the diversity of their student population and have uh, a broad uh, base of not only uh, experiences, but 
also, you know, ethnic backgrounds, race, racial backgrounds. Um, the, the old saying goes, all of the things being equal, you have two candidates, one's white and one's black, and they have the same GPA, they have the same roughly, you know, experiences in school and so forth. The tendency would be to select the minority person and not select the non-minority person in order to sort of comply with this affirmative action um, model. And again, that's something that has made sense for many, many years. And the question that a lot of people are asking is why in you know 2023 uh, do we all of a sudden seem to believe that discrimination is you know, cured, fixed, don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's a bit of a, you know, an overbroad interpretation of this case. But basically what it says is that race cannot be considered as a factor in admission. In other words, it's going back to a standard that would have existed before affirmative action was tacitly approved as a method to increase diversity and to say that now all people must be treated equal. So, you know, that sounds good, right? You know, everyone's treated the same way. But the issue that I'm sure many people uh, take on this is that that's as if to say we have reached a point in our society where um, people that have suffered both economic as well as societal disadvantages in the past due to uh, even subtle forms of discrimination are now uh, equally capable of taking advantage of opportunities that exist and that there's no more need for a little bit of extra help. That's really what we're saying. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't, I don't, it's kind of odd to be uh, trying to make these broad sweeping policy decisions, especially in the Supreme Court, you know that affect all of our lives in such a way that it's a form of social engineering. Uh, you know, hey, um, uh, affirmative action was a form of social engineering, but now we're kind of doing another thing along the same lines by saying that, okay, now it's time to not do that anymore. Um, and going back to uh, where we'll have at least the risk of race continuing to be a, be a factor, but the other way. Um, affirmative action, again, had a, a larger goal of trying to not only um, stabilize society by giving people opportunities that might not otherwise exist, but also to avoid subtle forms of discrimination, which our society has been guilty of many times over the years. I mean, sometimes, well, we went through a long history of not-so-subtle discrimination after... Um, Slaves were freed, and many states came up with laws that were designed to either disenfranchise uh, black people or to make it so that they were, quote, separate but equal facilities, you know, that, that whole thing. There's a long line of cases that have to do with where you can sit on a bus, which restroom you can use, what school you can go to, um, as far as that type of segregation aspect of it. But... Um, there had been many examples of, you know, insidious forms of discrimination where someone 
you know, whether it's hiring or admissions or whatever, when a, a group, an entity is trying to screen people out because of their race, then that's why this kind of larger step of affirmative action was deemed necessary. And it's been controversial over the years, and certainly, depending upon the context, one certainly might feel aggrieved if they're not a minority and they did not get selected and they could point the finger at this this policy. So, interestingly, you know, there are some people that are saying this was something that was inevitable, bound to happen at some point, and if the Supreme Court thought that society will just somehow fix itself, and uh, if they thought that having a policy that would encourage and promote affirmative action at one point could suddenly in within 24 hours be erased and extinguished and then everything's good i think that's kind of a bizarre way of thinking about it on the other hand uh you know it's it's not like i said it's not supposed to be something that lasts forever it's supposed to help society recover from the wrongs of the past so naturally uh all of the People that have something to say about this are predicting more litigation, not less, over this issue, and we'll see how it pans out. Uh, I know we're coming up on a break here, but I want to talk about an interview I heard from the president of Howard University, and that was fascinating um, because, as we'll talk about in the next segment, Howard University was a university that was created in the context of uh, insufficient efforts relating to affirmative action in the larger uh, collegiate context. So we'll talk about that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Now, as you may or may not know, Howard University is a school that was created in the context of uh, creating a high-quality institution for minorities to attend uh, and to create a competitive collegiate environment that is specifically designed to promote uh, black students and uh, create black professionals in the world. Uh, I don't know if you know this, hopefully you do, but Howard University is the fifth most competitive medical school to get into, and uh, a significant proportion of um, black physicians come from Howard University. So this raises an interesting question because, you know, by its nature, Howard has uh, stood on the principle that they wish to promote a particular race's advancement professionally and, and to provide those opportunities. Uh, sort of in the context of, you know, affirmative action, yes, but that not doing enough to take it take an actual step forward to do good things for the minority communities and think about it now if we don't have race being something that can be a basis for admission that kind of undercuts the entire uh, reason for Howard to exist in the first place and in the context of trying to, if we have a nationwide public 
publicly accepted policy that we still need to provide opportunities for those that have suffered from, you know, again, hundreds of years of oppression. And it's something that doesn't get fixed quickly or easily. It's something that, you know, quite frankly, endures for generations. Uh, you know, the, the bold and noble idea that a, a university that promotes the economic, I mean, the educational opportunities for black people was a, was a great idea. But you can see now in this context that may be problematic. Another thing is that Howard has traditionally received um, extra funding from the government because of the mission of that university. And one would definitely foresee that that funding's in jeopardy now, uh, given this decision. So we'll have to see. I mean, it's it's a mess no matter how you look at it, in the sense that it's kind of odd that that our Supreme Court would just suddenly announce that, hey, problem fixed, move along, <laughs> and then which is going to upend the entire process by which um, you know colleges in particular and I, people I've talked to are like, okay, this this creates problems because now you have to steer clear entirely of that issue of race. So what happens if someone in their college essay mentions what race they are? Or for that matter, I mean, I think all people have a tendency to identify certain last names with certain, you know, races. It's just, you know, how it works. So is the college then going to be on the college university then going to be on the spot if it's known and if it's part of the process that someone is a particular race and then they make a decision, you know, there can be accusations about whether that was a factor or not, even if it was injected into the process by the very nature of the applicant and what they have said in their essay. It's, you know, it's confounding this whole idea. Now, true, affirmative action was kind of a band-aid that was put on uh, an already um, problematic system. And, you know, a noble effort, for that matter, that in order to uh, try and do something more than just letting society figure it out on its own, because that wasn't working. And apparently, the Supreme Court feels that in 2023, that we're at a point where it no longer serves its purpose. And I don't know how they would know that, <laughs> one way or the other, but that's where we are. So, um, let's get ready for more litigation on this. Um, in the future, and I'll keep you updated on it. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I found a great article that I read. It was a good news piece that was done in the Wisconsin Law Journal, and it talked about um, the, the differences that we in Wisconsin have uh, compared to other states uh, in our uh, rules of the road, the things that we, you know, the basic rules of driving. And uh, they interviewed and did a ride-along with um, a state patrol officer and, you know, described all the differences. And, and I know this, but it was a very good piece in the sense that it broke down what a lot of those differences are and what some of the very unique things about Wisconsin. And one of them that is very interesting, if you think about it, is that on our multi-lane roads, whether it's an interstate or a state highway or whatever, if you have more than one lane of traffic going in both directions, 
most states treat the left lane as the quote-unquote passing lane and the right lane as the driving lane. And if there's more than one lane, it's the one to the far left that is the passing lane. All others are driving lanes. And in Wisconsin, there is no designated passing lane. All lanes are driving lanes. Now, the difference is that if you're in one of those states that has the far left lane designated as a passing lane, you're only supposed to use it when you're actively passing another vehicle. You're not supposed to just drive in that leftmost lane. Well, in Wisconsin, you are not required to be actively passing somebody if you're driving in that lane. Now, custom and practice is that you drive if you're just plain old driving and not passing anybody, you don't drive in the left lane just because it's not courteous to people that do want to go faster than you. And another big difference is, and I've talked to truck drivers about this, but in most of the states, Illinois is one of them. If you're driving a you know semi or you know a large scale truck, and in in other states you have to drive. Uh, in the right lane, you ha- you cannot use the passing lane unless you're. It's like an emergency passing situation, and because we don't have that law in Wisconsin, we encounter these situations. I'm sure you've seen it, where you're behind, you know, two or more semis that are going whatever speed they are, and no one's passing anybody. Now, again, generally as a courtesy, they won't take up the entire thing, but legally there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're traveling the speed limit. So I throw that out there because yes, there is also a law that if you're traveling too slow and you are impeding the flow of traffic, then yes, that's a violation in Wisconsin. So theoretically, even though the left lane is the driving lane, you can't be going 15 miles an hour under the speed limit in that lane or really either lane. You shouldn't be. Um, So it's the this trooper they were talking to was explaining how you, you know you can see right when people cross from Illinois into Wisconsin the ones that drivers that know that and that's usually professional drivers it, it's an entirely different approach to how they're driving when they're in Wisconsin because of that perhaps subtle difference in the law another thing that uh i think it's probably something that Wisconsin can be proud of is that we still haven't instituted any widespread measure of uh, red light violation camera tickets. And what I mean by that is that many other states, and this is something that's been going on, for example, in Chicago for quite some time, is that if you run a red light and I, or a stop sign and they have a camera there equipped to snap a picture of your license plate as it's happening, I can send you a ticket in the mail that say, hey, you failed to stop at this device, and then they send you a fine that you have to pay, and a fairly complicated process of contesting it, if you wish. And a lot of this goes into the whole thing about how money moves and where it comes from and where it goes. And a lot of these projects to, under the auspices of trying to make things safer in the community are really just ways of generating uh, revenue. And so what happens 
in these situations where people are getting these tickets. The idea is, okay, we can have a camera that's enforcing that. If people know that they're on camera, they will make a more complete stop. That's a good argument. That can happen. But we also know that it isn't going to happen every single time and that there are going to be these tickets issued and they are going to be sent out and it's going to, you know, increase revenue without having to have any officer write an actual ticket or conduct a traffic stop. Sounds genius, right? Well, we'll come back and we'll talk about the problems that have existed in both Illinois and other states that have had that program. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. So we're talking about stoplight camera tickets and the fact that we do not have them in Wisconsin. Now, this is to be distinguished from uh, speeding camera citations, which I believe are not yet being utilized in Wisconsin, but there has been talk about that. If you've traveled on the interstate in other states, you know that when you're going through any particular zone, they could theoretically get you on radar and send you a ticket with your license plate. And more common, what we see is when you drive through a toll area and haven't paid your toll, then they snap a photo of your license plate and send you the bill for the toll along with a convenience fee, which makes it more than what you would have paid on site. So there was uh, litigation in Minnesota where they were using these stoplight camera citations and it was successfully challenged on a constitutional level and i didn't expect the ruling to come out this way but it did uh the argument was that it was placing a presumption of guilt on somebody without there being any actual um human (laughs) testimonial interaction. In other words, leaving it up to an electronic device and a computer processed method whereby you uh, are guilty and must pay the ticket and it's up to you to prove otherwise against, you know, a, a mechanical process, an electronic process. Fascinating argument because who would you call as a witness? Who, who would, how would you, challenge the credibility of something or whether something's calibrated properly or whether something is, you know, there's any number of things where this process kind of eliminates, uh, you know, the human interaction part of it. But it's not just based on the fact that humans aren't involved. It's the fact that this is a process that creates that presumption where someone is ill-equipped to challenge it in such a way. And it's designed to give a distinct advantage, albeit monetary, you know, to those entities that are trying to raise funds. Now, I get it, and it's probably a good idea if things can be done in our society to encourage people to actually follow the law. And here's another interesting aspect of this this trooper that was talking about these differences. And this is a cultural thing. You know this to be true if you drive around Wisconsin, if you've lived in Wisconsin for any period of time. We tend to be much more courteous drivers than people from other states. No one's really sure why that is. Charlie Barron's would tell us it's just part of being, you know, from Wisconsin. We we like that Wisconsin nice attitude, which frankly I think is a wonderful thing. But it 
it also, <laughs> incur- you know, promotes this view of drivers from other states as being obnoxious and uh, full of road rage and driving like maniacs and disregarding traffic laws all over the place. And it's interesting when you think about it because, you know, we, we have a lot fewer um, of those draconian types of laws that they have in other states that would theoretically be designed to promote a more decent, uh, you know, road culture, if you will. But according to the state trooper, and he wasn't, you know, saying this out of any uh, discontent or malice intended towards Illinois drivers in particular, but he did observe that there's many differences in the way that people that are used to driving Illinois drive compared to those of us that are used to driving in Wisconsin. And one of them is that, again, it's just a cultural thing. Stop signs are kind of optional. A complete stop doesn't really mean complete. It means complete-ish or, you know, slowing down a bit. Speed limits are, well, you know, as long as you're within 15 miles an hour, you're probably, you shouldn't expect to get a ticket. And if you go faster than that, you're just entitled to go faster than that and pay your ticket for whatever inconvenience, you know, you're causing the officer. So, again, I hate to generalize here, but I can't tell you how many times I'm driving down, up or down 43, and when a car goes blasting past me, and, you know, it's going at least 90, maybe 100 miles an hour, I'd say a good percentage of the time that person has Illinois license plates. I I don't know why. It just happens. (laughs) So, um... In Illinois, interestingly, they have laws that are much stricter as it relates to speeding and what happens. Um, In fact, there's a law that may pass very soon that actually makes it a crime to exceed the speed limit by uh, 20 miles an hour or more. And they're still debating how that's going to work, but that would be uh, kind of... (laughs) groundbreaking in the sense that it's you know obviously you know you shouldn't drive that fast and it's probably very dangerous and it probably contributes to some very serious accidents when people actually do that we all know that but because speeding is one of those laws that you know too many people in society regard as optional um you know it's it it probably something probably does need to be done to make the penalties in such a way that they are um, more, you know, uh, significant. But legally speaking, you can count on me to always make a simple topic more difficult and more confusing. So here goes. Um, <laughs> the reason why speeding is an offense in and of itself that has always been tr- treated as a non-criminal charge is because it's a strict liability offense and that there are no, literally no, legally recognized defenses to speeding with the rare exception that one could say that it's they're in the effort of trying to save their own life or somebody else's life and that and then and only then can one provide the defense of necessity okay otherwise it doesn't matter if you're late if you're sick if you are rushing to get to the beginning of a concert or a football game or whatever you don't you're speeding you're speeding and you're guilty so 
that's been okay as a legal structure, so to speak, as long as we're talking about non-criminal charges. If you get into that realm where it's criminal, well, now we have to look at defenses that are available for anybody, you know, it's part of due process as well as confrontation and everything else that's built in the Constitution. So once you rise to the level of a criminal allegation, there's all these other things that make it different that have to be part of that process. So, you know, then one might be able to argue such things as, well, I was adjusting my radio or I was in an argument with my spouse or I was trying to get around this other truck that was spewing a bunch of garbage out of it, you know, the back and was damaging my car. Normally wouldn't matter. Those are things that don't you just can't raise as a defense. Too bad. You shouldn't have been speeding. Here's your ticket. But if it's a crime, well, all those things do come into play because a crime, you know, by definition has to include some mental culpability, whether it be intentional, reckless, or negligence, it's still something that in, takes into account a person's state of mind, what they were doing, why they were doing it, and all that other stuff. So, neat idea, I guess, to try and stop people from driving too fast. And by the way, there are times, even under Wisconsin law, that if someone's grossly exceeding the speed limit, they could be charged with criminally reckless conduct just because of how fast they were going. Um, we see this occasionally. I mean, there's even a law that sometimes it would fit, you know, recklessly handling a dangerous weapon, you know, being your car. Um, if you're doing something that's that reckless, just whether or not somebody gets hurt or anything like that, it can be charged that way when it's to an extreme. Um, but uh, another thing that's obviously very different about Wisconsin compared with everywhere else in this country is that we're still... The only state that treats first offense drunk driving as a non-criminal charge. And this has been controversial for decades because we keep increasing penalties around the edges, but remain the only state in the nation that does not regard a first offense drunk driving. We call it OWI. Other states call it DWI or DUI. We just call it OWI because we got to be different. We got to be unique, right? So our OWI laws, if it's a first offense, uh, are non-criminal. And people talk about, is that going to change? Well, I don't know, but I'll talk about reasons why and when we might expect that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking about differences in the law, the road roadway laws uh, in Wisconsin compared to other states and what makes this unique. Um, I was getting to the point where we talk about how in every other state, a first offense, drunk driving is a criminal charge. And in Wisconsin, it is and remains a civil offense. The other thing that's kind of odd about Wisconsin is our counting statutes. What I mean by that is when you are determining whether something's a first offense, second offense, third offense, and so on. And our, our counting statutes are a bit more complicated in our state because we have more people that it's applicable to. Now, let me explain that. If you're arrested in m most states for a drunk driving offense and you're almost always 
almost every state has something like this, where you can participate in a diversion-type program, go to some classes, drive on a restricted license, um, perhaps even have you know, breath testing or something like that required as you go through a period of quote-unquote rehabilitation. And when that's over, most, most states give people, drivers, an opportunity to not have this appear as a drunk driving ultimately on your record. And after a period of time, it would drop off. And most people, the vast majority of people that end up in that situation, take advantage of those opportunities and they're able to avoid, if not a, a completely, a conviction on their record, something that is does not have the same impact as an actual drunk driving conviction. So in those states, when somebody either refuses to participate in that process or they fail in their attempt to do so, then as a consequence for that, they have a conviction. And so in many states where a conviction appears on record as a drunk driving conviction, it's an indicator to the authorities that they did not succeed in an effort to rehabilitate on their own and failed. And therefore that the actual ding on the record counts in a much worse way. So here's the problem. In Wisconsin, we have none of that. We don't have that. There is no opportunity in the books anywhere that allows for somebody to participate in counseling or do things to not have it be on their record. And so that's another way where we're unique. On the one hand, nobody goes to jail on a first offense as long as somebody doesn't get hurt. But on the other hand, there's a law that says it cannot be amended or modified unless the prosecutor and the judge find on the record that it's consistent with the deterrence of drunk driving in our community by backing off of an OWI conviction. And you can imagine the legislators thought that wouldn't happen very often. So it's a, you know, a high bar. And, and by the way, that applies to, to drunk driving offenses and does not apply in the same way to any other offense in Wisconsin. It's a special statute just for um, drunk driving prosecutions. So the, the debate comes up all the time. Will we see an effort, a successful effort of our state legislature to criminalize first offense drunk driving. There have been times when it's come close, but the lobbying efforts that go against that are pretty tremendous and powerful. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that the you can see how politics works. And again, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but when you know the view of the public is that you know, we don't want this kind of law, and that's what they're hearing from some constituents versus others that do want it. You know, it's it's a lot easier to not be pressing for something that would have some natural, you know, law and order type appeal to it. Well, there's other people that say that we just have a culture of tolerance in Wisconsin that's a bit different. And outsiders will point to the fact that a first offense, you know, in their opinion, ridiculously, is non-criminal and like how could we possibly do that i guess we just i guess those wisconsin people just don't take drunk driving that seriously now i i don't think that's actually true i think that um yes we have supper clubs and we have taverns you know 
They do, they do all over the country, all over the world. They might not call them supper clubs, but you know what I mean. And having a cocktail or two at an establishment is not unique to Wisconsin. Um, true, we don't have the type of mass transit and, and public transportation infrastructure that many more populous areas areas have, such as if you were in downtown Chicago, you probably didn't drive there to begin with. So if you're impaired, however you're getting home, probably isn't driving. Um, same in New York City or other large places. Now, not to say that we should make all of Wisconsin like that, because that's not possible. But I, I disagree that there is um, a culture of, you know, complacency or that Wisconsinites don't take drunk driving seriously enough. That's not true. I mean, it's definitely something where it is, you know, when outsiders look in and say, oh, you're not taking, you know, you guys are, you don't take drunk driving very seriously. Now, our law enforcement officials do, absolutely, and tavern owners do, citizens do. And it usually happens when someone's got, uh, you know, uh, impaired judgment. They think they can drive and, or they've done it before and they figure no big deal. And that's the common scenario that's everywhere, not just unique to Wisconsin. But yeah, so um, I found this very interesting because another thing that the patrol, uh, the state trooper was talking about is that just over his years of experience, he can always identify a, an Illinois driver or somebody that comes from somewhere else when they're, uh, when a light turns green and how quickly the person proceeds through the intersection. And in general, Wisconsin drivers, you know, when it turns green, you have a bit of a pause just to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing and you proceed carefully, cautiously through the intersection. If you're turning, you're, you're giving, uh, you know, you're yielding to the traffic that should be there, that has the right of way. You're doing all these things that, that uh, you know, reflect a common courtesy for other drivers. Illinois drivers tend to floor it <laughs> and get through the intersection is like it's a like it's a drag race like okay here it comes and, and at the second that the light turns green uh the tires are either squealing or somebody is blasting through the intersection as quickly as possible now that's not to say that there are no wisconsin drivers that do that i see it you know with some regularity but um yeah i thought that was interesting so there are laws that are, and, and one reason why they say that this um, passing only in the left lane is designed to curb road rage incidents, which I find fascinating because by definition, road rage is someone who is upset with another person's driving. And it's usually because the other person is driving too carefully. <laughs> or not not going fast enough or whatever you know that there's that certain type of person that gets thrown into a rage because they're not able to dip and dive through the traffic at 100 miles an hour like they want to and they they keep coming upon obstacles obstacles being cars that are driving the actual speed limit so <clears throat> The theory behind having the left lane be passing only is that 
there will be fewer people that are driving the speed limit in the left lane. Honestly, that's what it's all about. So in Wisconsin, I guess the theory is that, hey, if you're if you're driving the speed limit, you can drive in any lane you want. And, well, I don't know. <laughs> Does that increase the odds of road rage or not? I think it's I think by having that law, I get it. It's kind of like trying to make sure that the flow of traffic continues in an orderly way. But, hey, you've you've driven through downtown Chicago or, you know, the the greater uh, metropolitan area of Chicago, and you've been in those traffic jams that are six lanes wide and nobody's moving. Um, do you think that by having the left lane be the passing only lane, it does anything to alleviate that? Because it gets ignored immediately. So anyway, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm glad you were able to tune in and you can spend Saturday morning uh, together with us. And we'll be right back next week as we are every week at 8 o'clock a.m. Right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL, this has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.